Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What if you know something is okay, but someone else does not? What if you know something is not okay, but others think it is fine? What if someone offers you something that is okay, and they think it is okay, but someone else is confused and thinks that it is not okay? Can something be both okay and not okay at the same time? What do you do then? Most people are fine when the gospel says do not judge. But what if the commandment also means allowing others to judge you? What should you do about the negative people in your life? We'll give you a little hint. St. Paul does not believe in the pursuit of your happiness, but he is fine if others are happy because of you. Even better if they are happy at your expense. Richard and I discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 113 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are moving on now to the second part of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 14 is a turning point in the chapter because we've been hearing about loyalty and about the dishonor of being honored as God's people in Scripture and what that means to be honored scripturally is to be shamed shamed and to be shamed in such a way that your shame is on display to the end of the ages for the sake of fellowship within the community but also and especially outside the community throughout the bible from the beginning to the end the problem is around idolatry and it's not just the fact of whether you build an image or a picture it's really around loyalty so when it says flee from idolatry the way we need to think about this is flee from disloyalty because idolatry is following a god that you thought up rather than the one who imposes himself on you whether you like it or not well and the interesting contrast here pertains to the question of shame and honor not just to loyalty but to shame and honor because the elite in the corinthian church are seeking worldly honor and worldly status by participating or communing in the sympotine in the household of other patricians. And what's striking is that in seeking their own honor and seeking to improve their own status, which is the opposite of the permanent shaming of those who are shamed in the story of the Bible, Paul's fathers, as it were, by seeking that honor, not only do they injure the one who has a weaker conscience in the church by partaking of what Paul will call the cup of devils or the cup of demons, but they are injuring the Roman patrician and those who gather in the sympathine because they are 
using them for selfish gain. That's the interesting thing about this section. The reality is when you are disloyal to the one head, you divide the community. You have to get it in your head. This is very difficult for Christians because we all fall into the trap of thinking about community as our church or our group. But here, Paul, as always, is pushing for a much broader tent that even includes the bloody patrician who's worshiping Venus. That's the irony. You can't use him any more than you can abuse someone in your immediate tribe. He's trying again, like he's been trying throughout this book, to force the listener to function according to his presuppositions. And this is classical rhetoric. This is what the rhetorician is trying to do, is to convince the hearer of a different way of thinking. Father Sergius Halverson recently said to me that when Chrysostom is critiquing rhetoric, he's using eloquent rhetoric, which is exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians. Paul is critiquing eloquent rhetoric, but he's extremely eloquent and erudite in his argumentation in the letter. And when he does so, he is undermining the presupposition of, like you were saying, the Simpotine, because in the Simpotine, it's all about the patrician gaining honor and extracting honor from those whom he forces to bow down to him. And Paul undermines this by placing Christ as the patrician, because Christ as the patrician is the one who was broken for the sake of those from whom he should have been extracting honor, who gave himself to those from whom he should be forcing to bow down to him. This is the difference. This is the point on which Paul pivots in order to take the simple team as a basic presupposition, but twist the father so that it's no longer a father who is strong and powerful, but one who is broken and crucified. But who's yet strong and powerful. Yes. That is the rub, and this is where people miss the nuance in the letter. Paul tells you, I am the equivalent as an apostle of the toilet waste of the Roman latrine. We are the runoff that goes to the Roman gutter, but yet, I will crush you any time with the gospel, so don't mess with me. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Paul is not being sarcastic. He's actually saying, look, you're not stupid. Figure it out. If you're going to follow me, if we're going to actually act as if we have a broken, crucified patrician, then what follows should be very different than a simple team with a strong, powerful, honorable, virtuous paterfamilias. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? It's a yes or no question. We're not sharing in the blood, the red-hot blood of his virtue and strength and virility. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? His brokenness, his death. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So now he's getting to the heart of what Eucharist means in the Pauline corpus. It does not mean oneness of mind. It's not about oneness of agreement, as is often assumed, or oneness of opinion. It's about submission. It's about brothers and sisters sitting at the table when the parents come into the room and ending their silly squabbles because the father or the mother is sitting at table. At that point, the theological opinions of the children not only are immaterial, but they are the very thing 
that is being squashed by the authority of the one who sits at the head of the table. And I cannot stress this enough. The Eucharist is not about choosing your side in a squabble. It's about smashing your squabbles because all that counts is how you treat each other. This is why having a vote in a parish is problematic because it assumes two sides. And it assumes that one side will then submit to the other side. The weak side will submit to the strong side. Instead, the strong should be submitting to the weak, all communing together with the brokenness of the one who is the head of our community to whom we owe all loyalty. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? The priests are the ones who make the sacrifice, but they're also those who benefit from the sacrifice. You've talked about this a lot in Hosea. Correct. The way that temple sacrifice would function, someone would come and bring a sacrifice in order to atone for their sin, and a portion of that sacrifice would then go to the upkeep of the priests themselves. So it's normal in Torah for the people who are making the sacrifice to also benefit from that, which is not necessarily bad. In Hosea, he makes it clear, Hosea chapter 4, that it's corrupted and it's used badly. But here is saying that when you make the sacrifice, you also benefit from that same sacrifice. And this is an important point for Paul because to whom are you sacrificing? Because the one to whom you're sacrificing is also the way that you're benefiting. So how do you benefit from the sacrifice? And already we know that if we're sacrificing to the one who's broken, the benefits are much different than a sacrifice to one who is strong and powerful and prestigious in the community. This is what is so difficult for people to grasp about idolatry. Ultimately, you avoid idolatry by giving deference to authority, because when you give deference to authority, and it's an authority scripturally, namely the Father of Jesus Christ, who disempowers you and does not honor you, then there's no way that your actions can be self-pleasing. And if your actions aren't self-pleasing, you're not doing anything to harm your community or the community that you would have exploited among the Gentiles by going to use the sympathine to increase your own honor and your own glory. Which means that individualism is idolatry. This is the point. Individualism is about pleasing yourself. Individualism is not something that the Americans invented. It's something that is born out of Hellenistic philosophy and religion. It's something that is the natural outcrop of human biology. We want to. We naturally want to be about ourselves. We, as individual egos, are always in competition with community. And Paul is coming in and saying, no, this is incorrect. This is idolatry. Because ultimately, if you go to the Sympathine, you are feigning respect for the patrician in order to gain respect and honor and status for yourself, which means it is self-worship. And we always want to find the one who is prestigious to whom we can glom on. And that is how we can ride the coattails of those who are strong and powerful. It's much more difficult to commune with those who are weak and broken. There was a funeral last weekend, and I heard someone say, you know, frankly, being around sadness and being sad 
It's really hard. I don't like it. And I said, well, you know, that's what you need to learn how to do. You need to be able to learn how to be with those who are weak. You have to learn how to be weak if you're really going to commune with those who are weak. If you please yourself and you skip the funeral because you can't bear to be around the pain of the funeral, or there's someone at the funeral who you can't bear to see, if you serve yourself in that instance, in our contemporary culture, it would be phrased as, you know, doing what's right for you, not doing anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. But in Paul's language, it's about pleasing yourself versus serving the common good versus pleasing others. It's a very serious matter. It's a matter of idolatry and therefore loyalty. And this is why Paul will not say that the idol isn't real. He's saying the idol isn't real because it doesn't function for him. The idol does not exist for Paul. And by exist, I mean it doesn't stand out as a reference for Paul. It's not about existing ontologically. It's about what your reference is. What is your reference? So for Paul, Zeus is a non-entity. But clearly, for the Gentiles, he's an entity because the Jews haven't done their duty to spread the gospel. And even worse, clearly, for those in the church who should know better, Zeus is a reality. He's a functional demon, but we know ultimately that the slap is that the ones who consider themselves knowledgeable in the gospel are the very demons. They're communing with themselves. This is what idolatry is. You're pleasing yourself. It's self-enjoyment. You get the point. So what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No! This is what I'm saying. There's no such thing as an idol. We know that. He's established that. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And by the way, if you're going to gain honor from the Gentiles by participating in these sacrifices, you are the bloody demons. You're making yourself a reference. The invective is not against Gentiles for sacrificing to devils, but against you, the listener, who would want to have fellowship with those devils. Gentiles, those aren't Paul's children. Paul's children are the community, are the Corinthians. Whatever the other parents are having their kids do is not my concern. You are my children, and you are not allowed to do it. Are the other kids drinking? Are the other kids carrying on? Not my problem. You, however, you belong to this house, you belong to this order, you belong to this father, and we have our own set of rules here. Those are the ones you follow until further notice. It's a brilliant argument, because what he's doing is saying, you can't partake of that cup, but the problem isn't them or their cup, the problem is you. This is the absolute root of the matter. He is showing them that the reason that they can't partake in this pagan ritual is not because the pagans are bad. They are not the problem. You are. And this is exactly opposite to the way in which Christians talk about the Eucharist. Nobody gets it right. Whether it's a church that has open communion for everybody, all are welcome, yay! Or it's a church that has a closed chalice. The reference point is the same for both of those types of churches. Because the one that says, all are welcome, yay, are making themselves a reference. 
they are presenting themselves as being righteous because they open it to everybody. But it's not their cup to open to everybody. They're presuming they're better than the church with closed communion because they open it up to everybody. But once you make that presumption, you are communing with demons. Or if you have a closed chalice and you're closing the chalice because the others aren't worthy or the others don't belong or there's something wrong with the others, you're communing with demons. It's functional. You could go to the sympathine and eat a piece of meat sacrificed to Venus and be fine. And you could go to the local church and partake of the Eucharist and be condemned. And the text of the liturgy bears this out, that you are eating and drinking your own condemnation. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. There is no twilight in scripture. It's day or night. You choose. I'm your father. It's my rules or the highway. You can't stay in my house and benefit from my patronage. But then when I tell you that you can't do something, run off to the household down the street because you like what they have for dinner this week. Not acceptable. Either you stay with me or you go to the neighbors and have spaghetti, but you can't go back and forth. You can either go with those who are strong and powerful and virtuous, or you can go with the one who is broken and shamed. But you can't have it both ways. If you do try to have it both ways, this is idolatry and therefore disloyalty. This is how the two come together. I just want the listeners to keep thinking about loyalty and idolatry, that idolatry is not about the thing that you set up. He's saying it's not about the sacrifice. Gentiles worship them. It's fine. As a matter of fact, Paul would probably say that Gentiles are more virtuous because at least they're loyal. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? That's the warning. If your father says, you stay home tonight and you eat dinner here with us, and then you say, no, the neighbors are serving spaghetti, I'd rather go there. You're making an assumption and you're taking a risk that the household across the street can save you from your father's wrath. And that is what Paul is saying here. You better remember, if you mess with me, you're assuming that I can't mess back with you. And obviously, the scriptural God is God. And you can't mess with him without paying a price. Provoking the Lord to jealousy is messing with disloyalty. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And this is what I mean when I say that you can partake of the Eucharist in the church and be condemned. Just as easily as an intellectual in Roman Corinth can partake of meat offered to Venus and be condemned. Paul's reference point is your behavior, not what you put in your mouth. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. It's what you say. It's how you act. If the head of the household is the one who is broken and crucified, that is your reference point. That is the one to whom you show loyalty. You need to be consistent. This is why earlier he was appealing to their logic. Be consistent. Be logical. If you're going to be loyal to the one who sacrificed himself for others, how can then you be loyal only to yourself? It doesn't make sense. If you're going to make sense, then the one who is the head, the one who is teaching you, the one from whom you gain wisdom, the one from whom you gain instruction was giving himself for the one who is weaker, then you serve yourself. It doesn't make sense. Individualism is idolatry, and idolatry is individualism, period. Let no 
one seek his own good but that of his neighbor all of these memes on facebook talking about getting rid of the negative people in your life are bs don't listen to your life coach because according to paul you're not allowed to get rid of the negative people in your life in order to seek your own happiness your duty is to submit to and please the negative people in your life if the head of our household gave his life to be shamed and crucified then how would you be able to justify getting rid of the negative people in your life if you are Paul's disciple. If you are a disciple of 1 Corinthians, you have to accept that the person who causes you discomfort or makes you feel bad is the right hand of the power of God against you. You have to begin with that assumption. This is the meaning of not changing your station in life. On the one hand, it's because the Lord is coming and nothing matters but the gospel. On the other hand, it's because the station in life is the station God gave you. So what's your problem? This is how Jesus spoke in the gospel. You would not be able to do this if my father had not given you this power. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Don't ask, don't tell, because it's just a piece of meat. Chalas, what are we wasting time talking about meat still? For the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. At the end of the day, not only the meat sitting on the plate at the Sympathine, but the bloody statue of Venus belongs to God, so relax. And the plate. And the plate, and the patrician, and the Gentiles whom were put in your care and you squandered their well-being because you wanted to get a nice opportunity to increase your affluence in Roman society. He repeats himself, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, Eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. He says it a second time verbatim. It's just meat. You are making something out of it because you are causing injury to everybody around you. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. Because once they name it, it's an issue. And in this particular pastoral context, once they name it, you are jeopardizing the weaker brother inside the church. So do not eat it. But also, parenthetically, not just for the sake of the weaker brother, but for the sake of the one who informed you, meaning your duty as a disciple of the gospel is to care for the needy neighbor outside the church. Paul does not bring shame and judgment to the one outside the church, only to the one inside the church. But he does so so that the one inside the church would show loving kindness towards the one outside the church. And if you are loving and caring towards the patrician and towards those gathered at the Sympathine, you would never, ever want to endorse their abuse of each other. You're not going to partake of it because at the end of the day, you know that you shouldn't take advantage of the patrician's station for your own gain. But you also know that the others at the Sympathine do harm to themselves and to the patrician. And your duty as a Christian is to bring the light of the gospel to that situation. So don't mess. If it's named as a god, it becomes taboo. That's it. That's how Paul is talking. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for consciousness sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? 
If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Conscience, not your own conscience, but of the other. This is exactly the opposite of how we talk. The way we talk in our society is, don't judge, it makes sense to me, right? But what he's saying is, it doesn't matter if you can make sense of it, it's how will you be perceived by the other? Exactly the opposite of how we talk. How are others going to judge you if you do this? I can't say it strongly enough. This is exactly the opposite of how we speak as contemporary Americans. So don't do it, not because you feel it's wrong, but do it because it might be perceived as something evil by a weaker brother, whether within the community or outside the community. I'll put it for you a different way. Americans like to say, everybody's an individual. And when they say that, what they mean is, I can do whatever the heck I want, because I'm an individual. Paul is saying, if you're baptized, you are not an individual. But you have to treat the others as though they are. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. You are always, always getting the short end of the stick if you are baptized. Paul doesn't care about you. He cares about the Gentile who's offering you meat, and he cares about the person inside the church who sees you eating the meat. You are immaterial. Whether then you eat or whatever you do, parenthetically, under the sun, do all to the glory of God. Because in the end, it's the glory of God that crowns a man's life, not the glory of the man, because the man is temporary and God is everlasting. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. This is what I was saying earlier about injuring the conscience. It's anyone's conscience other than your own. You're the one who doesn't count. Either kind of outsider or insider. The Jewish outsider, the Gentile outsider, or any insider, you're not allowed to cause offense to any of them. Individualism, in a way, is uber-tribalism. It's being a tribe of one. <laughs> there you go. So just as Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel are against Israel and the prophets, Paul here is against you. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. And here I have to tip my hat to the character portrayed by Leonard Nimoy in film and on television, Mr. Spock, who is famous for having said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one beautiful. Have a great day, Richard. Thanks very much for today's conversation. Thank you very much, Father. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.